This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Closing arguments began today in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. The day began with Judge Bruce Schroeder dismissing charges that stated that Rittenhouse was too young to possess a gun at the protests last year. The defense argued that the law states that those under the age of 17 are not allowed to possess, quote, short-barreled rifles, while the gun Rittenhouse was carrying was a long-barreled rifle, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. In their closing arguments, the prosecution hammered home the point that Rittenhouse knew that the men he shot and killed were unarmed, and that he, quote, walked away like a Western, end quote. It is now down to the jury to deliberate the trial. Rebecca Clayfish, former Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor and current GOP candidate in the 2022 gubernatorial campaign, is suing the state agency in charge of administering elections. Clayfish's lawsuit asks the Wisconsin Supreme Court to suspend election guidance made last year by the Wisconsin Elections Commission, guidance made during two unprecedented elections in a pandemic. The lawsuit seeks to have local clerks suspend the use of absentee ballot drop boxes, the consolidation of polling places, and guidance to not send poll workers into nursing homes, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Those calls come as a nonpartisan audit of the 2020 election found no widespread voter fraud. But that audit did make dozens of recommendations as to how elections are administered, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The race for Wisconsin's lieutenant governor is heating up. Today, State Rep. David Bowen of Milwaukee announced his bid for the seat in 2022. Bowen faces two other Democrats, State Representative Sarah Rodriguez of Brookfield and State Senator Lena Taylor of Milwaukee. Three Republicans are also running for lieutenant governor in 2022. That would be State Senator Patrick Teston of Stevens Point, Lancaster Mayor David Varnum, and Ben Volkel, former communications director for Senator Ron Johnson. All UW-Madison employees must receive the COVID-19 vaccine by the new year or face sanctions and possible termination, reports the Capital Times. The campus says the new rules are to comply with new regulations that require federal contractors to be vaccinated by January 4th. That stems from a recent executive order issued by President Biden. The mandate applies to all UW-Madison employees, including part-time workers and graduate students. The change could potentially affect the up to 1,800 employees who have not yet submitted paperwork. The mandate does account for medical or religious exemptions. Those with exemptions will be required to take weekly COVID-19 tests. After multiple fights broke out at Madison East High School last week, parents of students have appeared outside the school at the lunch hour to help provide support for students. The, quote, moms on a mission are there to provide support and encouragement to students to make the right decisions, one mom told the Capital Times. The group coordinates to have at least a dozen parents visible on school property over the lunch hour. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamonds told Channel 3000 that 90% of behavioral incidents have happened over the lunch hour. A special meeting by the Madison School Board to address violence at the school began at 5 this evening. The meeting is available to view on the school board's YouTube page. In more news from East High School, 
A student-led effort to feed those who are food insecure is opening up. Beginning tomorrow, the school will offer an outdoor free food pantry for members of the public. The idea to build a food pantry was sparked by a student at East High School, now a sophomore at the school. It's supported by the school's Food Equity Club and other food access programs in the community. Madison School Board President Ali Monroe at Muldrow announced today that she expects to run for another three-year term on the board, the Capital Times announced today. Muldrow was first elected to the board in 2019 and became the board's president earlier this year. Also up for re-election in 2022 are board members Ananda Mirali and Chris Carusi. Neither have said if they plan on running. The spring election will take place on April 5, 2022. Spring primaries are mid-February. And now today's COVID-19 numbers. Wisconsin had 2,862 average daily cases last week with 10.8 tests, percent of tests coming back positive. There were two confirmed deaths related to the coronavirus, bringing the state's seven-day average to 14 deaths. COVID cases have been steadily on the rise over the last month, with every county in the state having a high transmission rate. Dane County saw 996 new COVID cases in the last week. 58.1% of Wisconsinites have gotten at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, and 74.8% of residents in Dane County have gotten the vaccine. These numbers now include those below the age of 15 after the CDC authorized their use for children ages 5 and up last month. And now, on to today's top stories. Last Thursday, the Madison Common Council passed their 2022 budget. It was the finale to three nights of sometimes contention deliberation to over two dozen proposed amendments, each painstakingly debated and often requiring hours of questions. And one of those amendments, whether to increase capacity for Madison's Mental Health First Responders program, rounded out the council's final night. Reporter Nate Wegehout has the details. After a week of deliberation, the Madison Common Council passed their budget for the 2022 fiscal year last Thursday. It comes out to be one of the largest city budgets in Madison history. The budget will allow a small property tax increase, around $50 for the average Madison homeowner. Of particular note during the council's final night of deliberating, whether to increase funding for Madison's Mental Health First Responders Program. That program is called Community Alternative Response for Emergency Services, or CARES. CARES began earlier this year as an extension of the Madison Fire Department. It substitutes sending mental health crisis workers and paramedics to some 911 calls rather than sending police officers. Alder spent over an hour debating an amendment that would add $82,000 to the CARES program in order to hire two more full-time mental health crisis workers. But some Alders argue that the program is growing too fast and that there is not enough data to show that CARES needs more funding. Alder J.L. Curry says that we do not have time to waste. To me, it's, it's not about defunding the police. Um, it's almost in the same token as I've heard others allude to tonight of we care about CARES, but we care about addressing our system, systematic failures and addressing devastating programs and at times organize, organizations ending completely due to lack of funding. Tonight, this is about actually producing outcomes that indicate 
We do need to provide health and human services. Our community is suffering. We are losing people that look like me and my family and those that I love on a daily basis. And it doesn't have to be that way in such a resource-rich place. Currently, the CARES Act employs two mental health crisis workers and two paramedics and have already responded to around 60 calls since the program launched in September. The $600,000 total budget for CARES will come out of the Madison Police Department's approximately $84 million budget. Alder Charles Miodze noted that the amendment to the CARES budget isn't even one-tenth of one percent of the police department's budget. And regarding the funding source, President Abbas mentioned that this was somehow or another part of defunding the police, uh, as if this was part of a, a, a broader rhetorical statement. Well, let's look at what we're talking about here. We're talking about less than one-tenth of 1% of the overall police budget allocated to a program which ostensibly will reduce the burden upon police staff. Ultimately, the amendment to the CARES program passed in a 14 to 6 vote. The council also unanimously voted to approve of the purchase of a new vehicle for the CARES program. CARES wasn't the only thing discussed in the city budget. The Common Council also approved the hiring of two permanent part-time community connectors to join the Department of Civil Rights. These community connectors will act as interpreters for those who do not speak English and will be fluent in Spanish, Hmong, and Chinese Mandarin. Director of the Department of Civil Rights, Norman Davis, explains. We thought that it would be, it would be ideal to have representation for our top three non-English languages, Spanish, Hmong, and Chinese Mandarin, and, uh, and really be able to, to connect uh, to, to our communities uh, in, a, in a new way uh, and in a, in a more, um, in a more as, as I said, intimate way. Also on the budget earlier this week was a 1% wage increase for all Madison City employees, as well as the hiring of eight new police officers to help cover the city's acquisition of the town of Madison. The council also approved funding for a new ambulance and 10 new paramedics at Fire Station 14 on the city's southeast side. The area has reportedly been understaffed and has had to rely on help from other nearby stations for ambulances, resulting in those stations not having access to all of their ambulances. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehelp. Compared to other states, Wisconsin is ranked fairly low in terms of broadband internet access, but the infrastructure bill approved by Congress is expected to help cover existing gaps, bringing hope to groups advocating for working families. Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. In national rankings, Wisconsin hasn't always fared well in closing the digital divide, especially in rural areas. But advocates of the new federal infrastructure plan say now that it's a go, the state can build on efforts to connect more families to Internet service. Leading up to the infrastructure bill's passage, the White House noted Wisconsin will receive at least $100 million to help with broadband gaps, with the possibility of more money based on need. Megan Rowe of Opportunity Wisconsin predicts it will help carve out brighter futures for many households. Whether it's going to school or working from home, running small businesses, we know that access to high-speed internet is crucial 
to ensuring Wisconsin workers, families, and communities bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic even better than they were before. The federal investment comes on top of the latest state grants announced by Governor Tony Evers this month to increase access. According to federal officials, more than 5% of Wisconsin residents live in broadband infrastructure deserts, and 14% of households don't have an Internet subscription. Rowe says aside from adding more equipment to connect families, there's also funding to help people afford high-speed Internet. Even where there is infrastructure, broadband may be too expensive to be within reach. And so accessibility and affordability is a crucial part in order to make sure this is successful. In Wisconsin, the average monthly cable and Internet bill is close to $120. As for other elements of the infrastructure bill, Rowe says repairs to roads and bridges will produce good-paying union jobs that should help Wisconsin communities flourish. The bill's recent passage comes as Congress still tries to hammer out a broader public spending package known as Build Back Better. Some lawmakers insist that plan is too costly, but supporters argue it will be spread out over a decade. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, tens of thousands of climate activists descended on Glasgow, Scotland, for the COP26 climate conference. Her turn reporter Arlene Zaucha talked with Ozoa Benishi Albert about the conference. You're at the climate summit, the UN COP26. Why do you think it's important for you to be there? There are world governments making decisions. They're supposed to be making decisions on behalf of its citizens. Yet, there's a really huge influence of oil and gas industry and other corporations, those who look to profit off of the crisis that we're in right now. And so I'm here because I want to make sure that, one, we hold our elected officials accountable to making decisions on behalf of its people and not behalf of corporate interest or capitalist interest even. And I think that those people who are at the front lines of this climate crisis and the front lines being, they're being directly impacted now, not later, but now are being directly impacted by climate change, should be the ones who are at the tables making decisions about what the solutions should be. How would things be different if the people who are directly affected are at the table? I think the decisions would be dramatically different. If you ask people who are under harm or threat from a condition, what would be the best solution? They're the experts at those solutions. 
if you center the voices of those directly impacted, and many of those are communities of color, indigenous communities, and women, if you center those voices, you get solutions that are based on the care and keeping of community and not led by the care and keeping of the economy. Economy is important, but we should also think about like how are we looking at economy in more regional, smaller, localized community perspectives. How do you see feminism and environmentalism connected? If I just take, well, environmentalism, but specifically climate change, it's causing extreme weather patterns, drought, wildfires, hurricanes, far more destructive like tornadoes and such. Those things, those elements, those disasters directly affect women in a different way and women and femmes because in communities, women or those femme-identified people are often holding the care and keeping of the home, the access to food, care and keeping of the food, and the community. Climate change directly impacts people's access to food. Weather patterns are causing lower yields or blight or can cause hunger and illness and sickness and poverty. Homes are being destroyed by flooding and landslides and, you know, hurricanes and Disaster relief is challenging for women to access. And women worldwide are being displaced from their homelands. And then, you know, in terms of community, like when I think about community, I think about the culture and the socializing that people do. A lot of that space is, and even the art that people do, you know, a lot of those materials and sources that we have for festivals and parties and feasts, those become harder to do and harder for women to access. And so this has a direct impact on women, what's happening in the environment, what's happening with climate change. I'm wondering your experience there at the summit. Have there been some activities or some events that have been especially meaningful for you? I was on a panel last night with Indigenous women, Indigenous feminisms at the front line of climate chaos, which was a powerful panel of women all the way from Alaska down to Guatemala. That was really powerful. There's been lots and lots of women that are here. The march was especially powerful and to see the number of women from all parts of the world coming together and like making their voices heard. And so, yeah, that's been good. Some activists have been criticizing the summit for being all talk, no action. How do you feel about that? I feel like it feels a little bit like business as usual. The people who have the most at stake are on the outside or have limited access or are not able to be inside at all. Some weren't weren't even able to attend because of restrictions. And so, yeah, in some ways it feels business as usual because then, you know, when I went in there, there's so many suits, you know, there's all the like suits and business suits. You can tell these are all the like oil and gas executives. And I just heard a story earlier today that the number of extractive industry lobbyists outnumber the indigenous delegations as a whole, two to one. There's twice as many lobbyists here for the industry than there are indigenous peoples who traveled from all over the world to be here. That's crazy. Yeah, I think the New York Times made point about that too, that the folks at the table are mostly old and mostly men. 
And I guess from our yes. country, I would say mostly white. Yes, that's still mostly true. <laughs> I mean, the, so the challenge, you know, there's this unique challenge that's happening because of COVID. They've put in lots of restrictions for health to make sure people stay healthy and well. And I absolutely appreciate that. And But, you know, in some of the spaces, you know, there's capacity limits, but they didn't make any intention about making sure that those rooms had a diversity of voices. And so even if you want to go and listen to a panel and then offer an intervention from the microphone in the audience, many of those spaces we can't even get in the room because they're already at full capacity. But you peek in, you can see it was like, oh, well, there's not hardly any of our people in there. Do you have much trust in the promises that are coming out of the summit, the things like cutting the methane emissions and stopping deforestation and some of the other promises that we are seeing coming out? Do you have much trust in that? I have far more worry than I have trust about what what is coming out. I mean, yeah, I'm optimistic with the goals that they're setting, but I'm not optimistic about the the methods that they're using to do that, you know, and how they want to reduce carbon and reduce methane are these like strange techno fixes that don't seem like they would really work. But also there's a lot of market systems of like, oh, well, we'll recreate this carbon trading system. Well, we're going to net zero. Net zero isn't a reduction in carbon by saying we're not going to produce carbon anymore. It's saying, oh, we're going to produce at the same rate, but we're going to find ways to offset it because we have enough money to do that. And that's just not a system that I think is viable for us in the long haul. If you create a system of trading carbon, you're creating a system that will continue to depend on carbon. And what I really want to see happen is a reduction and an elimination of the production of carbon. And so that means a transition away from extractive fossil fuels. What would you say that each of us who are concerned, what kind of actions can we take? I think you should talk to your elected officials locally and remind them to be careful about wording of like net zero, to not support market-based systems, and to be concerned and ask lots of questions. Ask lots of questions when people say, oh, this is a nature-based solution. What does that really mean? It means, oh, they're going to continue to pollute as long as they can plant a few more trees somewhere else. So ask questions of your elected officials and demand accountability. Second, I would say, find opportunities even when you're doing that of like how to make sure that people of color voices frontline voices are heard in the spaces both locally in your states and in your communities but also nationally you're listening to handcrafted local news here on wort stay with us we've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show we look at the local government's week ahead on forward lookout learn about finstas and learn about the Women's Pentagon action and review two movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. 
Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan city and county agendas for what's up next in local government news. This week, they talk about finance committees, Monona Bay, redistricting, and more. All right, it's Monday. You know what that means. We're speaking to Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. We'll start with Dane County. Monday, 5.30, all virtual unless we say otherwise. It's the Personnel and Finance Committee, so this meeting is already in progress. So, Dane County, budget still a big deal, or is the Personnel and Finance Committee over with that? They are done with the budget, and it seems like they're catching up on everything else. So, they have a pretty long agenda. Um, They do have a bunch of affordable housing projects, um, more ARP money that they're getting out the door. Um, They're also looking at some um, narcotics drug task force uh, money, as well as um, some more money going to the sheriff's department from another grant. And then they're also looking at mental health and wellness check-ins for the Dane County Sheriff's Office and purchase a service agreement for fitness for duty and promotional assessment and evaluation for the sheriff's department. Um, And then they will be going into closed sessions to talk about WPPA bargaining. Let's jump to Wednesday now, 5.30. The Lakes and Watershed Commission is meeting, and they're going to talk about uh, Monona Bay and other things. But it looks like routine business, right? Yeah, Monona, Monona Bay presentation, they didn't have any information. I'm thinking it may be a little bit about uh, the lake flooding, but I'm not entirely sure. They're also looking at an urban water quality grant program, as well as um, some of the looking at their commissions and committees and, and figuring out how that's all going to operate. Thursday, 5.30, the Dane County Board's Executive Committee uh, will meet at 5.30, and that's followed by a full county board meeting at 7. And this is the big redistricting day, right? So let's start with the Executive Committee, but then we'll get into uh, the full county board. They'll be approving the final county board supervisory district plan, and then that will be having a public hearing at 7 o'clock at the county board. Um, And then the county board will be looking at a lot of those uh, personnel and finance items from earlier in the week, as well as zoning and other routine items. Moving on to City Mass in uh, 5 o'clock Monday, the Transportation and Policy and Planning Board. What are they talking about today? Well, probably the big thing transportation related is the transit network redesign. Um, And so they're looking at equity and what does that mean for the transit redesign um, you know, there's a sort of a little bit of a tension between do they make a system that works really well or do they make a system that goes to everybody? Yes. And so that's the thing that they're weighing there. Do you want it to run faster, come more often, be more useful, or do you want it to cover more areas and be closer to those bus stops? And, and it is like a difficult call, right? It is. Um, you know, the, the question is, is, you know, if it doesn't work for people, they're not going to ride it. And so if you make it work faster and come more often, more people will ride it and then less people will be in their cars. And so that it it is a pretty um, interesting dilemma that they are facing at this point. Brenda Conkle, somehow in the pocket of the mayor. You heard it here first. Forward looking. (laughs) Totally. No, I'm joking around. Hey, this is the, do you care about this? This is the time to get involved. It definitely is. And you know, I don't think there is a really straightforward, clear answer on the best way to do it. I think, um, you know, we're not going to get both. Tuesday, 4.30, the Common Council Executive Committee will uh, have an important agenda of item. Uh, we're going to hear about it from the chief of police at 1 p.m. at a press conference. But it's a big independent study, uh, basically looking how the Madison Police Department handled 
um, the protests in, in 2020 when some stuff went down. Uh, so that'll be important, right? Um, yeah, I'm really surprised uh, as chair of the Public Safety Review Committee. I didn't know about the press conference tomorrow. And I didn't know that the report was coming out until I saw it on the agenda here. So um, unfortunately, we don't have it on our agenda for Wednesday because um, we weren't told it was going to be happening. Um, and also my open records request to see all the video that went to over to the Quattrone folks to be able to study it. Um, I put in an open records request in February and I still don't have it. Man, we're 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 usually we're pretty good about just going over the meetings, but today we're just getting into it, Brenda. Like our own personal frustrations uh, with everything. I, I've had it. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see why that's annoying. All right, well, I guess we'll see it now. But yeah, uh, uh, you think the public safety uh, a committee to you know purposefully about public safety would sort of have the heads up about this but i'm assuming it'll be on your agenda at some point but all right we'll leave that where it is uh but we'll let's talk we'll talk about that in a minute but what about 6 30 tuesday the full common council uh uh budgets passed what uh what's going on with them now yeah the budget is passed and they have a pretty short agenda um they think they might get out early but that's always a curse to say that out loud a couple of things that i noticed that might be of interest they have that um core campus manager program um, where the they're going to have some low-cost student housing. They're also looking at um, the hotel rooms for people who are staying at uh, Rindell Park. Um, they'll also be looking at uh, storage lockers and city parking facilities. And lastly, they're going to do a reconsideration on uh, discussing what should go before the Common Council Executive Committee. All right. In interesting. Parking ramps, by the way. You can call them facilities, I guess. Parking ramps. That's what we call them here. We call them ramps. All right. Wednesday, uh, let's do the Urban Design Commission. That's happening at 4.30. Yeah, they have a, a couple of projects, one at 1050 East Washington, 1954 East Washington, and 7800 block of Mineral Point Road. Um, and then they're going to be talking about the South Madison plan, too. Um, it's on several agendas this week. And then the plan division staff is going to give an update on the Greater East Town Area Plan. And as we sort of alluded to a little earlier, 5 p.m., the Public Safety Review Committee will not be looking at this big report about how the police responded to the 2020 protests. They will at some point. They'll be they will be getting an update on the CARES, uh, the new CARES program, though. And uh, full disclosure, right, uh, Brenda is the chair of this committee. Yep. Uh, the, the assistant fire chief had asked to have this on the agenda so he could give us an update. So we're looking forward to that. We're also going to be talking about... Uh, the Madison School District Safety uh, and Officer Response Plan um, with all of the fights that have been going on. We had this on our agenda long before that, but it sounds like it could end up being a, an interesting discussion. And then Rindell Park and Homeless Issues has been on our agenda for many months, and we are going to discuss it yet again. And we'll jump down to Thursday. The Housing Strategy Committee meets at 4.30, and the Landlord Tenant Issues Committee meets at 5 o'clock, so a lot of Good housing policy being discussed. So can you go over what's happening with them? Sure. Housing Strategy Committee is, again, going to be looking at that South Madison plan. A um, lot of discussion there about should the housing that is built near the uh, transit, should it be single-family homes or should it be high-density housing? So I think that's going to be the discussion there. And then at the Landlord-Tenant Issues Committee at 5 o'clock, they'll be talking about um, rent abatement changes. And then they'll also be looking at an, their equity analysis and um, their plans to follow up on what kinds of items they can be working on there. 
to take a look at all the meetings happening this week in Dane County and in the city of Madison. You can head on over to forwardlookout.com. Thank you, Brenda, for walking us through it all today. You're welcome. On today's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson tells the story of the groundbreaking women's Pentagon action of 1980. Tomorrow, November 16th, marks the beginning of the women's Pentagon action in 1980. The action occurred after the government's pledge to deploy a new generation of nuclear missiles in Western Europe that could reach the Soviet Union in minutes. Effectively, first strike weapons. Ronald Reagan had just been elected. Over 2,000 women were led by four huge human puppets of Vermont's activist bread and puppet theater. They marched through Arlington Cemetery to the Pentagon. They encircled the building. Over 140 women were arrested for blocking doors at two entrances. They also blocked the mall entrance, but no arrests were made there. Most arrestees pled no contest and were immediately sentenced to 10 days for the first offense, or 30 days, the maximum for second offenders. 34 of the second offenders who received longer sentences were shackled at the wrists, waist, and ankles and immediately sent 300 miles to a federal prison. The women were part of the eco-feminist movement which sought to combine environmentalism, peace, and feminism in one overarching philosophy. The idea for the Women Pentagon Action came out of an eco-feminism conference on women and life on Earth held in Amherst, in Massachusetts that spring. With input from over 200 women, author-activist Grace Pally drafted a jargon-free manifesto called a Unity Statement. In her essay, Yanestra King, an eco-feminist activist scholar, wrote that the process of collectively creating the statement set the tone for the actions to follow. The action was guerrilla theater, ritual, pageant, and civil disobedience. As King wrote, all of us were the theater, the actors. There were no speakers, no stage, no leaders. In the first stage, thousands of women walked to the beat of a slow drum through Arlington Cemetery, past endless, neat rows of tombstones. They were led by a giant black bread-and-puppet papier-mâché figure. When they reached the Pentagon grounds, they knelt to place handmade grave markers Mary Dyer, Anne Frank, Karen Silkwood, Mother Roberta, self-induced abortion, 1964, the Selma Witches, the mother of the soldier my son killed in Vietnam. The drumbeat quickened, became insistent, and a fiery red puppet led the second stage. To the astonishment of the cynical press and the Pentagon personnel, women began circling the building chanting, No More War, and Take the Toys Away from the Boys. White bird puppets atop long poles rent the sky, swooping, flapping, long, gauzy wings. All was fury and chaos, said participants. From rage involved the third stage. Another gold puppet led the way. The empowerment puppet held a basket of scarfs. The women helped themselves as they began to encircle the Pentagon one mile in circumference. As they circled, they read aloud from the unity statement and sang, We shall not be moved, song of the soul, and you can't just take my dreams away. By using the scarves to connect woman to woman, the circle finally closed around the war building, and the women gave a great cry of victory. Finally, the women blocked three of the major entrances to the Pentagon. Some, including Grace Pally, sat on steps, 
linking arms and letting their bodies go limp as soon as officers approached to arrest them. Other women, led by the spinsters of Vermont Affinity Group of feminist activists, began spinning webs of multicolored yarns across two entrances to show all life is connected. They decorated the web with flowers, feathers, leaves, and bells. As if on cue, the police came out with pocket knives to shred the webs and clear the entrances. Unwittingly, they played their part in the pageant. In a dance of destruction, they ripped apart the symbolic webs, demonstrating how our connections to each other, the animals, the earth, are severed, said a participant account. The group held a similar event the following year, with over 4,000 women. The project led to an anthology, Reweaving the Thread of Life, that included essays by Joan Baez, Barbara Deming, Carla Jay, Holly Near, Alice Walker, and dozens of others. Their actions influenced the British Greenham Commons Women's Encampment against the cruise missile emplacement. That web of life connected the women to prior struggles like the Women's Peace Party of 1915 that led to the creation of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, Wealth, and today's struggles for peace and against global climate change. But those are stories for another day. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Our newest feature is titled Bridging the Gap. Each Monday, contributor Teresa Yen will bring you an aspect of Generation Z life that you may not be aware of. In our first installment, Yen explores a unique phenomenon on social media, Finstas. If you're on social media, you might have heard of a Finsta. If you're scratching your head at why that is, no worries. This is Teresa Yen for Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring Gen Z culture. A Finsta is slain for a secondary Instagram account that's private. It's a permanto of fake and Instagram, on which Gen Z users post pictures and videos they wouldn't otherwise put on their main account. It's often a private account, meaning Finstas aren't easily searchable, and only a user's close circle of friends are aware of the account. So why have a Finsta? Alira's Ellie Abraham writes, quote, Finstas offer a private place of safety where users can let go of the burden of unhealthy, unattainable beauty standards, end quote. This speaks to one of the main concerns of Instagram. The platform has influencers and celebrities posting heavily edited photos of themselves, promoting unrealistic beauty standards for people to attain. Consequently, users become heavily self-conscious when posting any photos of themselves on Instagram. That's why they turn to Finstas. Because of Finstas' private nature, 
and the selection of only close friends as the audience, users feel less pressured to portray a refined version of themselves. On their Finstas, they're able to share the unedited photos, the random captions, and be more relaxed about sharing their lives on the internet. Another reason why people choose to use Finstas is because of digital surveillance. USA Today's Brett Molina finds in an interview with Cornell professor Brooke Aaron Duffy that some people may fear digital surveillance from their place of employment. Duffy says, quote, We often hear about employees losing their jobs after publishing a distasteful image or a tactless tweet. End quote. Therefore, using Finstas could allow for less scrutiny and more freedom in sharing on social media. The word made national headlines recently at a Senate Commerce Committee hearing. A short clip of Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal grilling Facebook head of global safety Antigone Davis went viral online. Will you commit to ending Finsta? Senator, uh, again, let me explain. We don't actually, we don't actually do, do Finsta. What Finsta refers to is young people setting up accounts where they want may want to have uh, more privacy. Out of context, that clip might demonstrate an out-of-touch awareness with the younger generation, but it might not have been too off-base. That hearing was dedicated to examining a whistleblower report examining Facebook's business practices. The Facebook papers revealed, among other things, that Facebook failed to address the consequences of exposing new users around the world to hate speech and misinformation due to their poor content regulation. Another finding from the papers? Instagram and parent company Facebook knew that Instagram had toxic social effects, particularly for young girls. Wall Street Journal found in an Instagram presentation slide from 2019 that they knew teenagers blamed them for increased depression and anxiety levels. But doing anything to rectify it would impact Instagram and Facebook's bottom line. Here's Senator Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, speaking at the same hearing. IG stands for Instagram, but it also stands for Instagreed. Some of these revelations are not new. A 2018 article from The Atlantic, written by prolific social media reporter Taylor Lawrence, found that teens are constantly being bullied on Instagram. Some bullies would create a Finsta dedicated to bullying one person, posting photoshopped pictures or spreading rumors of the victim. HuffPost Daniel Patterson writes, quote, because Finstas assume a different username, most teenagers will eventually experience the wrath of a Finsta bully." End quote. Some users may use their Finstas to leave malicious comments due to the nature of its anonymity. Patterson further points out, even though Finsta is private, you're still posting to the internet. And these days, you can find almost anything on the internet. Being cautious of what you post still applies. Social media is indeed social, bringing with it all the positives and negatives of society. And if your public account is equivalent to your public persona, perhaps a Finsta is equivalent to who you are to the people who know you best. For Bridging the Gap and WORT, I'm Teresa Yen.
Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the big screen. Eternals is a fun new Marvel superhero movie with a very inclusive cast. And Belfast, an autobiographical film written and directed by Kenneth Branagh on 1969, the beginning of The Troubles. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. That was a clip from the trailer for The Eternals, a new Marvel superhero story directed by Chloe Zhao. This is a fun movie with a star-studded cast, good special effects, and a pretty good story. Zhao has done an amazing job juggling ten stars who play immortal superheroes. Sent by the Celestials, the Eternals came to Earth 7,000 years ago to protect humans from deviants, giant lizard-like monsters. After destroying the deviants, the Eternals expected to be recalled home, but haven't been. Their only clear instruction, don't interfere in human affairs. The Eternals try to blend in. Some even grow to love the humans. Cersei, Gemma Chan, who has the power to manipulate energy and matter, has done especially well. She's a teacher at the London National History Museum and has a human lover, Dane Whitman, Kit Harrington. He has a minor role here, but there are hints of his future importance. Dane doesn't know Cersei's true nature, and when the Deviants arise again, he's rescued by Cersei's ex, Icarus. Richard Madden, the most powerful Eternal of them all. Commendably, Dane recovers from his shock, taking place shortly after the Avengers Endgame, which returns half the population back to the universe, releases a lot of energy, and somehow revives the Deviants. Or so the Eternals' leader, Ajax, Selma Hayek, theorizes. The rest of the heroes include Thena, Angelina Jolie, as the mentally troubled goddess of war, and Gilgamesh, Don Lee, who has super strength. Gilgamesh is Thena's protector. Drug, Irish actor Barry Keegan, who can control minds. Kingo, a fun role for Kamel Najiani. He becomes super buff and shoots lasers from his hands, but more importantly, gives the story some much-needed humor. He's blended in by becoming a Bollywood star. Mercury, played by Lauren Ridloff, has super speed. Her deafness is betrayed matter-of-factly. Plasto, Brian Tyree Henry, is a tech wizard. He's also, slight spoiler, the MCU's first openly gay character. Plasto has one of the movie's most affecting scenes when he mourns at the sight of the Hiroshima bombing. Last but not least is Sprite, Leah McHugh, a tricky illusionist. After they reunite, there are cool fight scenes, some twists, and surprises. Stay through the end of the credits. There are two teasers, clues for what MCU hopes comes next. All in all, a fun superhero movie, I recommend it. Next up, a more down-to-earth story. We all have a story to tell, but what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins. Can you shoes? Do you think me and that girl have a future? Well, why the heck not? You know she's a Catholic. Can you call me her? Yes! You know who you are. Your buddy from Belfast. Well, everybody knows you. The whole family looks out for you. 
good, Tom. If you can't be good, be careful. That was a clip from the trailer for Belfast, written and directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's 1969 Belfast, the star of the Troubles, through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy, Buddy, newcomer Jude Hill. Branagh is from Belfast and has said this story is a version of his own dysfunctional family. The movie is beautifully filmed, largely in black and white with music of Van Morrison featured throughout. It has been criticized for a rose-tinted view, but it humanizes the people of Belfast in a way that documentaries or straight news stories seldom do. The film starts on Buddy's block, where everybody knows him and looks out for him. Buddy has been playing with friends, jousting at a dragon with a garbage can lid when the calm is shattered by a riot. His mother, a fine Katrina Balf, grabs the lid to use as a shield against rocks and paving stones as she gets him and his older brother safely inside. They huddle in their apartment as windows of the Catholic homes are shattered. They are part of the Plock's majority Protestants. Buddy doesn't understand what has happened. But this event sets our story in motion as his dad, Jamie Dornan, who works in England, tries to persuade his family to leave. But much of the story is about everyday life. Buddy has a crush on the smart girl in class, hangs out with his grandparents, the always remarkable Judy Dench, and a gruff but loving Kieran Hines. They go to the movies, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, 1968, and Buddy watches American Westerns on TV. There's a tender scene with his parents singing and dancing at the pub. The movie could have used subtitles. I highly recommend it. See it on a big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to Her Turn reporter Arlene Zaucha for our interview today. And thanks to our feature contributors, Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. And a special welcome to Bridging the Gap contributor Teresa Yen. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. Welcome, Nate. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.